You know, if you ask the typical person what their needs are, you're likely to get a Pandora's box of answers from them. People will tell you they need more money, they need more time, they need more energy, they need more health or whatever it might be. Somebody might say to you, I need a drink or I need a, a, a fix. Somebody might say, you know, I, what I really need is respect from my wife. I need my children to obey me. I need my husband to love me more. I need to feel cherished or I need to, to feel wanted. Or someone might say, you know, I need a job or I need more respect at my job or I need a sense of fulfillment or I need accomplishment or I need some significance in this life. I need a, a sense of belonging, a sense of respect. Someone might say, you know, I need a sense of adventure. And they go through life, all of this formulating and passing their days, their existence this way, for the most part placated by a mountain of books and material and therapists and talk show hosts who bolster this fundamental view of themselves, uh, this, this idea of how needy they are. And people begin to basically view themselves or they view their heart as some sort of container that needs to be filled up all the time. Some sense of incompleteness. And when those needs are not being met, they believe that they are walking through life with some sort of deficit, some sort of, some sort of uh, gap or something. Christians have even seized on this view and suggested that the key to life is to stop looking at people to fill your needs or to fill your heart and to start looking for God. And so people form this idea that God exists or that He has given us His gospel or His word or whatever it might be in order to basically fill your deepest psychological needs. And so people naturally reduce God to just one other source of fulfilling whatever they feel their needs may be. The problem, of course, is that for many people, whenever they approach God this way or evaluate God this way, in their experience, they conclude that God isn't meeting their needs, whatever they may be defined as. He isn't giving them the satisfaction they wanted. He isn't filling their heart with a sense of belonging. He isn't fulfilling their desire for adventure He isn't giving them that sense of accomplishment, that sense of comfort, that sense of belonging, or whatever it might be, health, wealth, whatever they define it is, it's all the same. And people walk away from God all the time because He hasn't filled their cup the way they expected it to be filled. But the reason that God doesn't fill or doesn't fulfill those needs that you sense is because if you present yourself to God or to anyone for that matter, basically as some sort of cup that has to have constant psychological filling and satisfaction, you'll never feel quite full because that view of yourself is essentially self-focused. And such a self-focused desire is defined by the Bible as what? As lusts. They are lust, and because they are lust by biblical terms, they are in their very nature never satisfied. You'll always be longing for more. Now, I'm not saying that when you come to God that He doesn't fill you with a sense of peace and He doesn't fill you with joy. I'm not saying that within the body of Christ there isn't some sense of belonging, but people who try to reduce God to some sort of tonic or some sort of lucky charm or some fountain to satisfy or to fill their cup without ever realizing as they come to God the purpose that He has even given to us His Word, the purpose for which He's given us the Gospel, the whole way in which He presents Himself is not in order to fill your cup, but actually it's in order to break it. 
God's desire isn't to satisfy your lust, it is to confront them. It is to shatter whatever kind of vain container you've been trying to fill all of your life with all of these desires. And God presents the gospel to provide for, not your psychological felt needs, whatever they may be, but instead He presents the gospel in order to satisfy your real need. And your real need isn't for someone to meet all of your desires. Your need is really for someone to forgive you for them. Your need is to be exposed in them for what they really are. In so many ways, the desires of the flesh. Now, this is the gospel. And it's the bleak picture of mankind that you find in the opening chapters of the book of Romans. It's what Paul has laid before us as we've taken time to go through this book. And he began, you remember, back in chapter 1, verse 18, telling us already that God is revealing His wrath against all mankind He's revealing it by what? By giving them over to their lusts. Giving them over to their desires. First of all, for the defiling of themselves. Secondly, for the bringing of shame upon themselves. Receiving, as he says, the just penalties of all of their error or falsehood. And then eventually destroying themselves. And all of this... Paul tells us, is the prelude to the wrath of God. This is just the beginning of God's wrath. This is just a foretaste of what is to come, but it's not the end because there's a day of wrath that's still coming. And although God has been patient and kind with men and women who still refuse to recognize all of His kindness, they haven't responded with repentance And so Paul says in Romans 2, verse 5, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 12, All who sin without the law will perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, judgment and wrath are applicable to everyone, no matter what their background, no matter what their religious involvement, no matter how many religious laws they follow or don't follow or whatever it might be, everyone is in the same predicament. They are facing the wrath of God. They stand under the judgment of God. In Romans 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul defends The fact that God is right, that He is righteous when He inflicts this judgment against us. Because, as He says in chapter 3, verse 9, all are sinners. All are under the power of sin. All are under the guilt of sin. In fact, Paul strings together a a number of Old Testament quotations to summarize this view of mankind. He says in verse Uh, 10 of chapter 3, there are none righteous, no, not one, excuse me, not verse uh, 10, but uh, yes, at the second half of verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So they're unrighteous, they don't understand their own lostness, they're worthless before God, and they don't even seek Him. And even those who are religious, even those who are involved with all these ceremonies and all these religions around the world, every one of them are in the same boat. In other words, even their religious endeavors are just another expression of their sinful and selfish desires, simply driven in another format. It's a bleak picture, no doubt. It's gloomy. It's discouraging. But in the final analysis, this is the verdict. There is none who is righteous. This is man's basic position. It's also his most fundamental need. It also presents your most fundamental need. Whether you feel it 
or whether you don't feel it, whether you know it or whether you don't, whether you think about it on a daily basis or whatever, whether you've never thought about it before, this presents your most essential need. Your need, because none is righteous, your need is righteousness. You're born in this world needing it. You go through your life needing it. You pursue all of the things that you pursue, uh, whether knowing or not, that this is what you need. Most basic need, not even something that you think that you may even want, much less need. But you need righteousness, which is essentially just a right relationship with God, a right standing before him a position where when you meet God in the final judgment rather than being declared wrong you will be declared right and this is your need whether you sense it or not this is the message of scripture this is the message that Jesus himself preached and brought this is the message of the gospel not that God is here to meet all of your felt needs but that God has come to deal with your real need And if you'll accept that as your real need, then God has an answer. Now, it's out of that absolute bleak and dark picture of mankind, after almost three full chapters of hopelessness, that there comes this piercing ray of light in the book of Romans, beginning in verse 21. Paul says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if there's any confusion in your mind about what this is all about, as Paul writes all of that language... You just need to take note of what he repeats over and over and over again. You see it in verse 21. Now the righteousness of God. In verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. In verse 25, this is to show God's righteousness. And in verse 26, it is to show His righteousness. And the whole paragraph is all about the righteousness of God. It's all about being right with God. And it's all about God being right. And when you read it in the original Greek, it's even more striking because the same root word that we translate righteousness is also the word from which we get justified or just. And so it's also there in verse 24 when it talks about our justification or we're justified by His grace. And it's there twice at the end of verse 26 where Paul says God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith. So this is all about righteousness it's all about God being right and us being right with God and so if you have understood the message of Romans so uh, so far if you've understood the message of Jesus Christ if you've understood the gospel then you understand before you get here why Paul is saying all this why he's laboring this point so diligently because he has absolutely buried us under the reality of of what we lack. We lack righteousness. We have none of our own. Nothing by which to commend us to God in the least way. This crucial need for righteousness far above anything else then defines the gospel. In fact, Martin Luther called this the most important paragraph of the Bible. It's the center point He says, not only of the book of Romans, but of the whole Bible. 
So obviously, we want to understand what Paul's trying to say here. We want to contemplate its meaning very carefully over the next couple weeks, maybe even over the next month, and we're going to do that. And so as we look at this passage, we want to walk carefully through it to understand what Paul says about righteousness. And he tells us a number of things when it comes to righteousness. First of all, When he speaks about this righteousness, he tells us that it's a righteousness that is now manifested in the cross. It is, first of all, a righteousness that is now manifested or made clear or put on display in the cross. And this is what he's saying in verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's a a perfect tense word, meaning it's something that took place in the past, but it's having its ongoing uh, impact or, or resolution or visibility or whatever it might be. And really this beautiful transition comes to us now after we've been so buried in sin and you come to these beautiful words, but now, in spite of everything that's been said, this marvelous, marvelous ray of light comes out of the ugly hopeless, black, dark despair of all the condemnation and damnation and hell and judgment that's come before it. Man was left standing at the bar of God's judgment with no defense. You remember in verse 19, he says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. I mean, it's like that moment when your kids come to you and something has gone wrong and immediately they, they just leap into some sort of justification. Well, it wasn't me or I didn't mean to do that or if I had known this or whatever it might be. And they're just, they're just, just uh, pouring forth with whatever excuse has come to the top of their head and you're sitting there just shaking your head. I've heard this a thousand times, right? Well, you might have had all of your excuses throughout all of your life, to your parents, to your friends, to your spouse, for all the things that you've done wrong. But he tells us on the day of judgment, there will be no excuse. Every mouth will be stopped. Every person will be held accountable to God. 4 in verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Everyone's going to be sitting sitting in that same place, standing, as Paul leaves us there in verse 20, before the, the judgment seat of God with nothing to say until you hear these words, but now, but now, God presents to us His way, His way of hope. His way of salvation, His way of righteousness. And when you get here, the whole tone changes. The whole presentation of God who has been presented thus far as the holy and righteous judge, and not only the judge, but also the executioner, the antagonist, the accuser, all of His fury being poured out. And here being presented as the Savior. I don't know if you're familiar with that great uh, Greek classic, the Iliad, but there's a point in the play when the great warrior Hector wants to say farewell to his wife and his son. And he knew he may not return from this, his last battle, and so he wants to embrace his child one more time. And so before he heads out to battle the great Achilles, he He comes and he reaches out to his son who cowers away because he's fearful of his father dressed in all of his of his fierce armor. And it's at that point that Hector begins to take off his armor, takes off all of those fearful pieces to reveal underneath all of that, all of that uh, ominous front, the loving father who's underneath. And in a sense, that's what God is doing here. He's been standing before us as the, as the judge and the executioner. And now, for those who He's called to Himself, He's taking off all of the furious clothing of His wrath and calling us into His arms as a loving Father. 
Those words, though, don't just mark a transition in thought. They really, they mark a transition in time as well. Because what Paul's saying to us isn't just up to this point in the gospel. This reality now is shifting. But Paul's really pointing out that up to this point in time, that God has demonstrated in a new way His righteousness, how He achieved that righteousness. Because previously, it was less than clear. Previously, it wasn't as evident in the Old Testament, in the era before Christ, in the era before the cross. The law did not make it clear how man would receive righteousness. All the law did, as we saw in verse 20, was bring us the knowledge of sin. The law had told us over and over again. It told Israel over and over again. It presented to everyone who heard it that God demanded perfection. And when you sinned, there were penalties, penalties to be paid, which mounted up in every Jew's life and mounted up before their eyes. They were unable, even the most devoted of them, to offer all of the sacrifices necessary to remain clean long enough to do all the things that the law demanded in all the situations of life where they could feel in any sense at peace with God. And up until the time of Christ, this was the thrust of what had been revealed. This was what was known. It was the knowledge of sin that came by the law. It's not all that was known Because along with the law, there were promises. There were promises of salvation. There were promises of righteousness. There were promises of covenant love. Promises even of restoration for Israel. So along with all of these these fearful and terrifying warnings of judgment, there also came these beautiful remembrances in the Old Testament and through the prophets of how God would remember His people, how He would show them loving kindness. But what was never clear throughout all of that time was just how God could offer salvation. How He could offer salvation to such filthy sinners without Himself setting aside His own law. In other words, what was unclear was how God could offer forgiveness so freely without absolutely abandoning his own moral foundations. And this is what Paul says has become manifest. This righteousness of God, which previously was so unclear, has now become known. It's now been put on display. That brings us to a second thing that Paul says about the righteousness here. Not only that it's a righteousness that's manifest, but it's a righteousness that is consistent with Scripture. It's consistent with Scripture. As he says at the end of verse 21, it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even though the way of righteousness would not be achieved by the law that was given in the Old Testament, even though the way of righteousness wasn't wasn't fully manifest there, it was... It was witnessed to. In all the ceremonies, through all the sacrifices, through all the uh, uh, Levitical system, there were preludes, as the author of Hebrews tells us, preludes of what was to come, of what was necessary when God called for not only a sacrifice, but He called for a spotless sacrifice, an unblemished lamb to be laid on the altar. When he called for pure and holy priests who would stand in between Israel and God. When he had all these provisions in the Levitical system. And not only that, when he gave promises to the patriarchs. Promises even in the midst of giving the law to Moses. That Israel, although they'll fail, will one day receive from God a circumcised heart. All of these were preludes and witnesses to what was to come. In other words, when you get to the New Testament and you start reading everything that comes there, you're not supposed to have the idea that somehow this is plan B. That somehow that that there was some way of salvation that God tried in the Old Testament and then when you come to the New Testament, he's, He's giving us a second way. No, that's not the case at all. This is exactly what God had always planned. 
even if the particular procedure wasn't always as clear. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look back at Romans chapter 1 and look at verse 2. Or you could begin in verse 1 where Paul calls himself an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which, he says, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So in other words, this gospel that Paul preached, he says, is the same gospel that was promised beforehand. It's not a, it's not a diversion. It's not some uh, brand new thing. This was something that was consistent with the Old Testament. When he comes later and even introduces specifically the righteousness of God in chapter 1, verse 17, when he talks about the righteousness of God being revealed, he says it, And then proves it or validates it how? By a quotation from the Old Testament. In other words, this righteousness that's now made known through the cross is exactly the righteousness that was spoken about in the Old Testament, if even still not as clearly manifested. Even later on, as you come to Romans chapter 4, when Paul wants to illustrate and validate his point even further. He does so by appealing again to the Old Testament, to the life of Abraham. So the whole message, the whole message that Paul is preaching stands in continuity with all of the Old Testament. It may not have been in every detail laid out, but it is perfectly consistent. The work of the cross would make more clearly known God's hatred of sin, God's love of sinners, and His way of justice. But the promises were always there. And in fact, even the call to faith was there. The call was clear enough so that Abraham responded in faith. There are people who formulate this idea sometimes that in the Old Testament... The way that you receive salvation from God is by keeping a bunch of rules and a bunch of laws so that in the Old Testament, it was some sort of salvation by law keeping. But when you come to the New Testament, it's now salvation by faith. And they they bifurcate the the Bible into these two systems. But everything you read from, from the Scripture, everything you read from the Apostle Paul was, no, this is exactly the same message. Even if it's more clear, it is perfectly in line with what has come before. It stands as as that which was testified by the Old Testament prophets in the law. Even the manner in which salvation is received, even the manner in which God's righteousness was, was brought into the life of saints in the Old Testament was always there. Abraham understood that he needed to believe in God. And he responded in faith. What was clear is that righteousness was not achievable from the law. And if salvation was to come, it would only be by the mercy of God. That brings us to a third point. A third thing that Paul wants to tell us about the righteousness here, and that is that it is a righteousness apart from the law. It's a righteousness that is apart from law keeping. He says it there in verse 21, now apart from the law or apart from anything that you do religiously, anything that you do by way of keeping rules and laws and regulations, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. He has manifested a righteousness that comes some other way than law-keeping. The Bible clearly demonstrates that a man can be right with God, but not on the basis of anything that he does. You know, in this, Christianity stands in distinct contrast to every other religion of the world. Every religion in the world, it offers its own answer about how to be right with God. It offers its own pathway of salvation. But every one of them, in one form or another, tell mankind that the way he needs to be right with God or with all the various gods is to do certain things. It it might be pagan religions and offering up 
some sort of sacrifices. It might be uh, uh, Eastern religions and going through processes of meditation and purity and, and, and sanctifying yourself or, or cutting yourself off from the pleasures of the world. It might be some superstitious religions in voodoo or whatever it might be, but whatever the religion that you find in the world apart from Christianity, every one of them have the same basic answer. That you, uh, you, you approach God, that you know God, that you experience God by the things that you do. But the message of the Bible is that you cannot be right with God by anything that you do. You can't be right with Him by any religious procedure. You can't be right with Him by your attendance in church. You can't be right with Him by confessing. You can't be right with Him by doing penance. You can't be right with Him by going to the priest. You can't be right with Him by going to the confessional. You can't be right with Him by by taking uh, the, the, the Mass or taking the Lord's Supper. You can't be right with Him by giving. You can't be right with Him by sacrificing. You can't do any of those things. If you experience God's law, if you understand what the Bible says in all of these rules... If you understand it correctly, then you understand this, that the law was given simply to make you know that you're guilty, but it can do nothing to save you. Now, this is particularly devastating to religious people who like to think that they do enough good things, enough better things than someone else in order to be right with God. This is devastating to them after all of their years of service and all their, their, their gifts and all the money that they give and all the time that they serve and even all the accolades and the praise that they've received for their goodness and their, and their virtue. To hear the Bible say that the way to God is not by human effort, not by anything you do. But this has always been recognized. By the saints of the Old Testament, even David says, Lord, if you were to count sins against us, who could stand before you? God, if you actually, if our sins actually matter, if all of our violations of your word actually matter, no one can stand before you. And so it becomes clear that if you're going to have a right standing with God, if you're going to have righteousness from God, if it's going to happen in any way, it must happen apart from the law. Which means that there's no preparatory work. There is no way that you have to get yourself ready. People have this idea that, yeah, one day I'll, 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 I'll draw close to God, but right now, you know, I kind of want to just live my life however I want to live, and maybe when I get older, or maybe whenever I get married, or maybe whenever I get through this situation, this time, then I'm going to prepare myself, I'm going to get religious, and I'm going to approach God. But what the Scripture's telling you is you can't prepare yourself. There's no change that you can make that's going to make you any more ready or any more prepared or any more uh, uh, acceptable to God. And not only that, after you come to God, there's no supplementary work. There's nothing that you add to whatever God gives you. There's nothing that, that you can give, no input, no provision, no influence that provides any kind of impact on your salvation. It is totally and completely apart from anything you do or anything you offer to God, anything you could persuade from Him, any way that you might motivate Him. God, in other words, is unmotivated by any of your good deeds. As the old saying goes, when it comes to your salvation, the only contribution that you make is the sin which makes it necessary. So this is the whole point of the opening chapters of Romans. 
It was to certify in every way possible, in every way that Paul could say it, no matter how outwardly moral or religious you might be, you still fall short when measured by the standard of God's law. By the law, no one will be saved. By the law, every mouth will be stopped. By the law, every person will be held accountable under God's wrath. By the law, we're left in the same position in which we were born, having no righteousness, no way in which to gain God's favor. And so if we can't be saved, or if we can't be made righteous by our own efforts, how can we be made righteous? How can we obtain this righteousness of God? Well, it's the fourth element that Paul highlights when it comes to this righteousness. It's manifested in the cross. It's consistent with Scripture. It's apart from the law. But he tells us in verse 22, it's received by faith. The only way that you will receive anything from God is through faith and faith alone. The Reformers knew this. They they attached to the word faith, the word alone, the word sola. And, and the Roman Catholic Church objected to this as if somehow this was an undermining of any true incentive towards true righteousness or somehow this is even undermining the work of God. They objected to this reality, but as the Reformers presented time and time and time again. This is the message of the Bible. That if you're going to be righteous, it will come only, solely, no other way and with no other addition to faith. As Paul clarifies, the righteousness that has been revealed is the righteousness, verse 22, of God through faith. For all those who believe. It comes by faith. And through that faith. God credits. You. With a righteousness that's not your own. In fact look with me over at the book of Philippians. Because Paul states it so clearly there. Helpful in so many ways. But in the most basic sense you read Paul. Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 3 about his own pursuits, his own desire for righteousness. He says in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him... Not having a righteousness of my own. Notice what he says. That comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. He couldn't say it more clearly. He couldn't say it more clearly. This this is the way. This is the only way. Any admixture of human effort... Any admixture of anything that comes from you is a violation of this principle and a distortion of this gospel. It is by faith instead of works, or we might say instead of laboring to present something acceptable to God, faith receives what God gives. And that is it. Wherever the one who relies on the law or on human effort looks to himself in any way to satisfy God, faith looks completely to God and completely away from itself. And Paul makes this contrast over and over and over and over and over. He does it in in Romans. He does it in Philippians. He does it in Galatians. He does it even in Corinthians. So that his message is unmistakable. There is a a movement even today where people are wanting to redefine this message of Paul, 
wanting to suggest that what he really focuses on is not the the faith of the believer, but the faithfulness of Christ. That they say it's by the faithfulness of Christ that we're made righteous, and the and they diminish, therefore, the gospel call to faith alone. They suggest that the Greek word uh, pistis, which is used for faith, can be used as faithfulness from time to time. And all they, although that is possible in a few contexts, it is impossible in places like Philippians 3. It's impossible in places like Romans 4. It doesn't match the context of Romans 1. And it would be absurd for Paul to constantly be switching back and forth between meanings of that word as if he jumped in Romans 3 suddenly to the idea of the faithfulness of Christ rather than the mandate that we have faith in Christ. It is by faith, not by works, he says over and over and over again. Which, by the way, makes it clear that even faith is not a work. In case you had any doubt... As Paul makes this contrast, he wants us to understand even our faith cannot be counted as something that we do. As some people may sometimes think, their faith is something that is infused into them, but they have to work out in order for it to have any kind of value. B.B. Warfield writes this, he says, the saving power of faith resides not in itself, but in the Almighty Savior on whom it rests. It is never on account of its formal nature as a psychic act that faith is conceived in Scripture to be saving. As if this frame of mind or attitude of heart were itself a virtue with claims on God for reward. It's not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but it's Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. We could no more radically misconceive the biblical representation of faith then by transferring to faith even the smallest fraction of that saving energy which is attributed in the Scriptures solely to Christ Himself. As Paul says to the Galatians, if we add works, if we add even one work to the gospel of Christ, then Christ died in vain. Even the work of faith And so this faith, it's not in ourselves, it's not of ourselves, it certainly isn't faith in our faith, it's not faith in our efforts, it's not our sincerity. When Paul says you have to have faith, he's not talking about something in yourself or uh, unto yourself. When he says that this salvation is by faith, what he's saying is it is completely apart from anything that you have to offer to God. You contribute nothing to your salvation. You don't contribute good works, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. We're saved not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not, because, it's not of good works, because even our good works, as Isaiah 64 says, even our best, most pure, most religious works are polluted like a filthy Garment, says the prophet. It's not your works. It's not even your will which chooses God. In fact, if you have your Bible, look over at Romans chapter, excuse me, uh, John chapter 1. John makes it utterly clear that even your will contributes nothing to your salvation and your righteousness. He says in Romans 1.12, To all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can go over to Romans chapter 9, verse 16. And Paul makes the same point there. Romans 9, 16. 
Paul, speaking again of salvation, says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So even our will is not something that we contribute. Not even our choice. We don't even contribute that because we're told in Scripture that we are enslaved. That our minds are enslaved to sin. They're in bondage to sin and so they can't even choose God of their own. And in line with that, it's not even our faith. Not even our faith contributes to this because as Romans 8, 7 says, our mind which is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. That is, that is de- defining depravity. And it says it does not submit to law, God's law. In fact, as the New American Standard says, it's not even able to do so. Which speaks not just of our depravity, it speaks of our inability. Your mind in its natural state is not able. It's not able to submit to God. It's not able to submit to His Word, to His law. It's not able to yield up faith on its own. And so when we read about God giving faith to people, then we understand why that must be. For example, over in Acts chapter 13, verse 48 Paul speaking about his own ministry and his own preaching. He he says this near the end of that chapter. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, their faith and their belief came as a result of God appointing them. You go to Acts 16 verse 14. You read a similar thing. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul or what was said by Paul. Acts 18, 17, you see a similar thing. Excuse me, Acts 18, 27. And when we wished to cross to Achaia, our brothers encouraged, uh, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Or Paul says it probably the most explicit way in Philippians 1 verse 29. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 Speaking here of the Philippians, he says to them that uh, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. This is God's gift, he says. This is God's gift. He's given you the privilege of suffering for the name of Christ. He's given you even the privilege of believing in Him. And if you're here this morning and you believe in Christ, it's because God has given you that faith. It's because God has given you that gift. It's because God has privileged you with that. And so the principle of faith that Paul is setting forth was his way of of stating something completely contrary to anything that you could do to earn or receive God's favor. Faith, in other words, is only the human response to the effectual summoning of your heart. It is the awakening of our heart after God has breathed His regenerating life into it. And when God does that, the believer responds. He responds, as the Westminster Catechism says, quote, Believing to whatsoever is revealed in the Word of God because the authority of God Himself speaketh therein. And He acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, 
trembling at the threatenings and embracing the promises of God for this life and for that which is to come. It goes on to say, but the principal acts of saving faith are accepting and receiving and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. This is exactly what Paul will go on in Romans 4 to illustrate from Abraham's life. This is the way that Abraham entered into a relationship with God where he was declared before God right. In spite of all of his sin, in spite of all of his multiple marriages, in spite of all of his sexual infidelity, in spite of all of his deceiving and lying and and all the things that you see in Abraham's life, the way that he was still declared to be right before God was that he believed God. This is the gist of Romans 4, verse 20. The whole thing, it was by faith. It was by faith. He believed what God said. We have to emphasize all this because we know, of course, there's such a thing as false faith. There are people of faith that are all over the world who are engaging in what they believe are acts of faith. There are people who are gathering in what they think are houses of faith or cathedrals of faith or whatever it might be. And they all have some form of faith. Something that they are trying to put their trust in. But the scripture is absolutely full of warnings of a superficial, of a shallow, of a temporary kind of faith. A faith that may occasionally or even frequently talk about Jesus. But which ultimately places its trust in itself. Saving faith isn't like that. In fact, ever since the time of the Reformation, theologians have understood faith, genuine faith, to involve three essential parts. The noticia, which is simply knowledge. The ascensus, which is assent. And the fiducia, which is trust. Faith, in other words, it first of all involves Knowledge in the sense that it comes to understand what the Word of God says when it is taught or when it's preached. When it hears the Word taught, it understands, it comprehends what the preacher is saying. And faith, first of all, hears the Word of God. And we're told in Scripture, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In other words... There must be cognitive understanding of exactly what the Bible says about your condemnation in sin and exactly what the Bible says about God's offer of mercy. It begins with knowledge. But then it involves assent in the sense that it has conviction that what it hears is true. It hears the Word of God And what it hears from the Word of God, it believes is, in fact, the truth. As opposed to all the other theories and all the other lies that are out there. It believes the provision of Christ is sufficient. It believes the Word of God is trustworthy. Because the Scripture tells us even the demons believe. Even Satan believes in a certain sense. But he doesn't give assent to those truths that he knows. A false believer can know all kinds of facts about the Bible or about the gospel. And you see it all around you. You see people who have theological knowledge and can spout forth theological truths. Even in the culture around us. How easily... How eagerly people mock the Bible. They mock the message of the Scripture. They mock Christians and churches in articles and in video clips and in movies. They know the message of the Bible. 
But simply knowing it is not enough. They understand it, but they don't give assent to it. But a true believer not only understands, but he feels conviction that what he's heard is true. And then finally, faith involves trust, which Robert Raymond in his systematic theology defines as conviction which passes into confidence. It is conviction which passes into confidence. Raymond says it transfers all reliance for pardon, righteousness, and cleansing away from oneself and one's own resources in complete and total abandonment to Christ, whom you joyfully receive and upon whom you rest entirely for salvation. That's what faith in Christ means. That's what it involves. It isn't general trust in God. People say that all the time. My own unbelieving parents would frequently talk to me about faith, how you just need to believe and how they just believed God. And yet you never saw any evidence of assent and certainly no evidence of trust But this is true faith, not some nebulous hope that you cast up when you are in some unfortunate situation. But Paul says specifically, it's faith in Christ. You believe Him. You believe that He was raised from the dead. You believe that He sits in His body even now, in heaven, at the right hand of God, and you believe that He's coming again. You believe that He will redeem the world, that He will bring all things to completion, that He will judge those who are lost, that He will save those who are His. You believe every word of the Bible because you believe it comes from God. This is the nature of saving faith. Righteousness comes by this, and it doesn't come any other way. If you have anything else other than that kind of saving faith, if you have any other religious pursuit, any other hope, any other whatever, you don't have righteousness. But righteousness is your real need. You might be sitting here saying, well, What I need is this or that. What I need is a a different kind of husband or a different kind of wife. What I need is somebody who will be tender and compassionate to me. What I need is this. I need more money. I need more fulfillment. What I need is someone to, to fill my cup. That's not what you need. That may be what you want, but that's not what you need. What you need is be right with God. What you need is right standing with Him. You need, on the day of judgment, that when you come and stand before your Maker, that in spite of all the ways that you have violated His law, in spite of all the things that you've pursued instead of Him, in spite of all the ways that you have rebelled, that He'll open His arms as a loving Father and declare you not only right, but He'll call you His own and for all eternity. Well, it's just scratching the surface of the gospel. Just scratching the surface of this righteousness. Paul will tell us much, much more in the coming weeks. And it just gets richer and deeper as we go. Let's uh, bow together and stand as we close with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we know our need. We know it whether we admit it or not. We feel the guilt. When we sin, our conscience bears witness against us. We feel the shame of our deeds. We feel the darkness of our alienation from You.
or at least we knew it before we knew Christ. But how grateful we are, those of us who've received your grace, who have expressed our faith in you because of your power. How grateful we are that though we were so wrong and so alienated and so cast off, that we have been brought near. We've been made right. We've been secured forever by your gracious work in hand. Lord, I pray that not only today would you deepen our appreciation and deepen our love for this gospel, but in the coming weeks, I pray that you would teach us, that you would firm in our hearts and minds exactly how much we owe to you, to your glory and to your name. And if there's been any inkling in our life and heart and mind to take any credit for anything that has come to us, may we be rebuked. May we humble ourselves in repentance again so that all praise and honor and glory be to your name. And it's in that great name we pray. Amen.